This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University. He is, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the English language today, having written well over 100 books. And today we are speaking about his, one of his newest books, Italy, A Brief History. Welcome, Professor Black. Good afternoon. Professor, when do you commence looking at Italy as a historical subject in its own right? Oh, well, from my point of view, looking at a country means looking at its past, whatever political situation it might have had. So a country exists even if it is not yet a state. So I start with prehistory with Italy and go up to the present day. What I've tried to do is to write what's known as a crossover book. A crossover book is a book in which you try and use your scholarly um, understanding, your ability to, uh, based on academic research, to assess issues for a broader public. And in this case, I'm writing for people both who travel to Italy and would like a general account, but an up-to-date account of its history, and also people who don't travel there, but similarly would like an up-to-date account. Uh, Following from that, how important for you in terms of the history of Italy is its geography? Do you assign a sort of Brodelian importance to it? Well, without being a determinist, and I think Ferdinand Braudel was at times a determinist, I do think geography is tremendously important. And indeed, that helps to link together some broader themes in my work, the importance of maps, which in my way of thinking often illuminate geographical facts perceptions, and the fact also that, as you know, I've brought out a a book recently on geopolitics and a book recently on sort of British attitudes to to geography during the uh, development of empire. So in the case of Italy, the political fragmentation that one sees after the Roman Empire is linked, I think, to uh, geographical issues, not least the absence of a large area of um, of low land uh, with fertile agriculture again, around which an entire state could develop. But on the other hand, as you know, the formation of the Roman Empire showed that you do not need such an area in order to create unity. And the Roman Empire had an enforced unity, um, which rested ultimately on the ability to overcome uh, geography. I mean, the very phrase that the Romans used for what we would now call France, they called Gaul. Uh, They divided Gaul between Cisalpine Gaul, Gaul on this side of the Alps, 
by which they meant the modern Italian areas of Piedmont and Lombardy and Venetia, and also transalpine um, uh, Gaul, by which they meant modern-day France. And as the Romans made clear, they had actually surmounted the obstacle of the Alps. Uh, would it not be true to say that in the years after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, that the rise of autonomous Italian city-states in the 11th and 12th centuries, one of the most significant events to occur in Western history? Well, I certainly think Italian history is extraordinarily significant because much that we think about in terms of Western culture, including its origins in Europe, in fact originate in Italy. So one's thinking most famously of humanism and the Renaissance, one's thinking of the economic ideas associated with Venice, um, one's thinking of the need to cope with a pluralism, a political pluralism, in which there isn't a single dominant state. So all of those, I think, are very important. But equally, I would think it's fair to say that there are some other major themes in Western culture and through Western culture, and, you know, dare one say at this day and age, have brought progress to the world, uh, which originate in other parts of Europe. One can think of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which, of course, originated um, in Germany, or what is now Germany. You can think of the Industrial Revolution, which originated in, in Britain, and you can think of the practice of limited government and rule by law, which also originated in Britain. In the case of Italy, you would, though, agree that uh, the rise of uh, these autonomous Italian city-states, particularly in uh, northern and north-central Italy, were key events for the future of uh, uh, history in the Italian peninsula? I would agree with you, and I would think they were also very important in European and Western culture as a whole, because I think in particular that the ability of the uh, polities, states, if one wants to use that term, in much of northern Italy to defeat successive attempts by Holy Roman emperors of the Salian and Hohenstaufen dynasties, the ability to defeat those attempts and to, and to achieve a situation in which there is no central power enabled a plurality of developments, and some of those developments were to be extraordinarily important for the future. Would it be accurate to state that the economic divide between northern and, and southern Italy commences in the late medieval period? That's generally understood, yes. I think it's also fair to say that there is, as you know, a, a long debate among economic historians about this, and indeed among particularly uh, historians coming from Naples. There is, on the one hand, the argument that there was no inevitability here, that in many senses, uh, southern Italy, by which is understood um, the Kingdom of Naples, including Sicily, that southern Italy um, suffered from, quote, foreign rule, whether that rule was Aragonese or, or Habsburg, and that this meant that its resources were used for the benefit of elsewhere, 
and also that northern Italian commercial interests, particularly from Genoa and Venice, took over effective control of much of the southern economy. That argument has been extensively uh, deployed and, of course, very much suited arguments of sort of anti-imperial type in European and Western history, I think it's fair to say that there is considerable complexity. And of course, it's not only the case that um, that if you look at things on the European scale or indeed things on the Italian scale, it's not only the case that southern Italy had a relatively lower developmental rate than some of the peak areas in the north. But yes, I think you're right. You could you could date a lot of it to the um, to the uh, later medieval period. What were the origins of the so-called Italian wars of the late 15th and early 16th centuries? The Italian wars began with the invasion of Italy by Charles VIII of France in 1494 and are generally dated up to the peace of Cato Combresi between the French and the Habsburgs in 1559. And they reflect two things. First of all, they reflect what we've been talking about, the absence of a powerful state in Italy and therefore the inability of the Italian states to prevent external interventions in their politics. And intervention in that period obviously sent military intervention. So that's point one. Point two, it is the uh, divisions between the Italian states and their willingness to seek the support of non-Italian players, classically the rulers of France and Spain, uh, that's very, very important. And thirdly, it is the astonishingly uh, vigorous nature of the rivalry between the Valois dynasty of France and the Habsburgs um, that also helped to ensure this conflict and the, their, their inability or unwillingness to accept failure. So in 1525, for example, there's a famous battle at Pavia in northern Italy in which France is the first of France is captured by the forces of the Habsburgs, the Emperor Charles V. Um, France is duly, uh, you know, uh, signs a treaty or, um, in which he acknowledges that he gives up his territorial claims. He gets out, and as soon as he's got out, as soon as he's been released, he resumes the war. He loses again. There is a peace in uh, 1529. As soon as the opportunity arises again, break that. So I think it's fair to say that it is the strength of external intervention plus the willingness of internal Italian polities, whether it's the Republic of Venice, whether it's the Sforza dynasty in Milan, whether it's the Medici in Florence, whether it's successive popes such as Julius II, it's their willingness to seek the support of non-Italian rulers in pursuit of their interests. And in part, this is the classic problem of alliance politics. The non-Italian rulers assume that they will be able to use their skill in order to, as it were, you know, as tails wag the dog, bring in these powerful external uh, forces and use them to their own interests, uh, and that doesn't work out terribly well. I think it's also fair to say that external interveners often found the Italians uh, difficult allies themselves. Why was Habsburg Spain the big winner of that uh, series of wars? Well, uh, that's again a very good question, Charles. I mean, you know, you could play it for a determinist. I won't. I mean, if you wanted to play it as a determinist, you could say that Spain, uh, particularly once it was in 
the gold and silver from the New World. This is the age of Cortes and Pizarro. Uh, and the fact that Spain, in the person of Charles V, encompasses the modern-day Netherlands, Belgium, Austria, Czech Republic, uh, Slovenia, etc. You could say that simply France was out-resourced. But, you know, that kind of inevitability looks very parlous if you actually slow it down and look at particular years and notice the great pressure that the Habsburgs are also under because they're not only fighting the French, they're also fighting the Ottoman Turks. Solomon the Magnificent, for example, besieges Vienna in 1529. Charles V is also having to fight or feels he has to fight the German Protestants because this is the period of the Reformation. So I think you could explain, you could write a marvellously easy explanation of why both sides were bound to lose, uh, which I think is fairly true of most complex wars. And you really, I mean, this is the great problem today, if you don't mind. Can I make a broader point? The great problem today, and you see it in American universities, you see it in British universities, people who are reductionists, they don't want to understand the complexity of high diplomacy. They don't want to understand the complexity of war. They don't want to look at the and therefore they try and reduce it all to an account in which you explain something as being inevitable or likely due to superior resources. This, of course, is facile and silly. Neither Charles V nor Francis I nor such other contemporary players as Henry VIII of England or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Solomon the Magnificent, none of them thought that the events of the period were inevitable. So why should, with the, the complexity that, that they understood, why should, as it were, and one doesn't want to be rude, but many later historians of the present day are remarkably stupid to imagine that these are clear-cut outcomes that are necessarily supposedly inherent to the international system, arguing, for example, that there is an inherent multipolarity, for example, to Europe. Well, no. Speaking of reductionists, do you adhere to the traditional Italian discourse that argues that Italy in the early modern period was held back culturally, economically, and politically by Spanish dominance in the 16th and 17th centuries? No, I think that was a very convenient interpretation for Risorgimento um, historians and intellectuals because it suited their views to argue that. And of course, they created this narrative of Italian history in which, A, there is a place called Italy, B, Italy, Italy doesn't develop because of foreign oppression and domestic disunity, and therefore you ought to end both together and unite Italy around whatever political spectrum they envisage. So in the 19th century, that started out as a kind of republicanism, and it ends up with uh, a sort of proto-nationalism and then nationalism around the house of um, Savoy Piedmont. No, I think that that's very much a retrospective reading. I think one has to be very cautious before adopting the retrospective readings of nationalists of the 19th century and 20th century reading into the past. Of course, hilariously enough, because so many modern intellectuals derive their income from state support, i.e. their university academics or whatever, and these states are the, uh, are the successors to this nationalism, they, funnily enough, tend often, not always, there are 
there are people who don't, but often to assume this nationalist, uh, you know, this nationalist spectrum hardwired into them. There is no inherent reason to believe that Italy or France or Denmark, you know, to give states that had very different trajectories, should have taken the forms that they did, either in terms of international relations and the, you know, the positioning of them as a distinctive state or in terms of their internal political structure. And I think the same thing is true of Italy. I mean, you know, for example, being a member of the Habsburg Empire in southern Italy in the 16th century helps to give you protection against the Turks. I mean, let's remember this. Um, a Turkish army had landed, as you know, at Taranto, uh, near Taranto in Apulia uh, in the beginning of the 1480s, when Naples is not part of the Spanish system. And when Naples is under um, Charles V and subsequently Philip II, you get a very extensive fortification of the coastlines and the vulnerable positions in uh, the Kingdom of Naples. And, you know, I was not so long ago at Trapani and looking at the fortifications there. And you could do the same thing at all sorts of places. These are part and parcel of being part of the Habsburg system. Um, when the um, when the uh, and Magnificent sends a large fleet to Malta, which is then a part of the Italian world, admittedly uh, under the Knights of Malta, in um, 1565, it is the Spaniards that do a, that do the major act of sending the relief there. So I think you've got to be very careful here and you've got to not assume that, that 19th century values should necessarily prevail for an earlier period. Again, if you were a committed Catholic, an ultramontane Catholic, you might argue that Italy um, in the 16th and 17th century uh, is primarily part of a system led in secular terms by the Habsburgs, which is the system of the church militant. And you would be often disinclined or unsympathetic to those uh, Catholics, for example, in Venice, who were hostile to this Habsburg uh, leadership. Now, by the 19th century or the 20th century, of course, you don't have the strength uh, to the same extent um, of the of that tradition, and indeed, in 1870, the Pope goes and shuts himself up in the Vatican City in reaction against um, the unification of of Italy and the seizure of, of Rome, and that's of course a defeat for ultramontane uh, Catholicism. But prior to that, if you were to take that perspective, I personally am not an ultramontane Catholic, but you have to understand those perspectives in order to avoid this sort of anachronistic judgment of the 16th and 17th centuries. What do you mean exactly in the book by your statement, quote, the old aristocratic order survives to a greater extent than is acknowledged, unquote, in contemporary Italy. Right. I'd say the same thing of Italy. I'd say the same thing back to quite a few uh, European countries. I think you'd find the same thing if you were to look into German banking circles, for example. I think you will find that if you are a member of the Italian aristocracy, it still brings you considerable advantages in the world of connections and contacts, which is so important in Italy. I mean, in Italy, I, I, in Italy, I think it's fair to say, and this is not just Italy, it's true of country after country, uh, what the French call the long arm, the who you know and how that can help you forward is very important in all sorts of professions and occupations. 
and social status is still more significant than you might imagine. Um, and I, you know, I think if you speak to Italians privately, they will often admit aspects of their own society that they would be disinclined to talk about in public. But let me make this clear. This is not only true of Italy. Um, I was simply making that point because I think this idea that Italy has ceased to have an aristocracy with any consequence is, is, is not true. I mean, it's certainly the case that Italy is a republic and I can't see the House of Savoy coming back uh, at all. Um, uh, just as um, you know, you're not going to get the Hohenzollerns back in Germany and you're not get, going to get the Habsburgs back in, in Austria. Uh, but I think it is still valuable to people, those who have aristocratic um, antecedents, um, those, those sort of situations are very helpful to them. Overall, what in your opinion was the effect of the Napoleonic era in Italian history? Was it a case of continuity or discontinuity? Was it a case of a breakthrough, or to use the expression made famous by Croce um, in describing fascism, a parenthesis? Well, let's start with the idea of sort of Croce and parenthesis. Let's just make a simple point. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Marxist. I'm disinterested to see developmental notions of history as if it's going into a, a inevitable or, or necessary progression and that therefore people should move it into a certain direction or not. As you will know, a lot of Italian intellectuals argue that under Napoleon, you get, particularly the Kingdom of Italy and Northern Italy, you get a kind of form of meritocratic governance which breaks with the old elites and which looks towards positive secular uh, features uh, which uh, reflect what they would like to have seen happening in later 19th century um, Italian history. Now, as you will also know, there were many Italians that rejected aspects of Napoleonic, as indeed French Revolutionary rule, in particular, the massive extortion of manpower and resources to feed Napoleon's armies, the um, secularism, which is a pronounced aspect of Napoleonic rule, the fact that it's a spoils system, and obviously there are a, a, a tranche of French benefiting from those spoils, but also a spoils system within uh, the Italian area, Italian areas of the French Empire which means some benefit and others don't. Now, it, it used to be argued that there was greater popularity for Napoleon in Italy than I think now looks credible. And it's worth noting that if you look at that this argument extends to looking at the period from 1815 to the mid-19th century, you can play that through several ways. You can either play it through to say that... Um, that a sort of proto-Italian nationalism had been created under Napoleon but not brought fully to fruition, that this attempts to bring, to bring this to fruition are seen in the subsequent risings and against Austrian and Neapolitan rule, papal rule in fact, and that these are repressed by a harsh and unpleasant Habsburg rule until eventually there's a crisis for that rule 
in the late 1850s, beginning of the 1860s. So that's the standard account, and you'll know that in, it's in a lot of the textbooks. Or you could say, actually, much more complex than that, the Napoleonic rule was not particularly uh, attractive. It had been very onerous, and um, by 1813-1814, it had long exhausted whatever popularity it had, it had merited. But as a result of that, the Habsburgs were able to have a degree of control and influence across Italy after 1815, resting on a much greater extent of popularity um, might otherwise have been accepted in tra traditional accounts. And this popularity in part can be uh, tracked to their um, uh, the way in which they're linked to Catholicism and the way in which we now understand that religion was more popular, uh, religious conformity, orthodoxy, whatever term you wish to use, was more popular than used to be imagined. And therefore, that one has to look, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the Italian wars, one has to look for particular reasons for the crisis of Austrian uh, rule in the late 1850s and early 1860s. And again, the particular reason you'd be looking at would be French intervention. So that in a sense, and this of course is not the sort of thing Italians like listening to, uh, that in a sense, just as Americans, if you don't mind me saying so, Charles, don't like, as I know, people listening to the French argument that they, in a sense, were cru crucial uh, to, to America getting its independence, that you could argue the same for the French and Italy. And that when um, the French do not intervene in this fashion, for example, in the crisis in 1821 or the crisis in 1830 or the crisis in 1848, 1849, then there is not that outcome. So, you know, you can play it two different ways. And my own view is both of them have a degree of credence because you're talking about a complex society in which people are motivated by different factors, as you would anticipate. But that certainly to just take the standard view would be uh, misleading, however much it might uh, match modern suppositions. But then modern suppositions, I have to tell you, and I have to tell the listeners, are going to look very curious in 150 years' time. So you you would not necessarily disagree with uh, Gramsci's argument that the Carbonari and Mazzini did not in fact enjoy much by way of popular support, a case of, uh, I suppose you can say, generals without an army. I think that's right. But what I wouldn't say, as, as Gramsci would have gone on to argue, uh, and uh, people of his uh, ilk, that this is a question of false consciousness on the part of the public. Um, I, I think the Italian, the bulk of the Italian public was quite entitled, whatever you mean by that term, um, Italian publics, I should say, were quite entitled to feel that they'd had an experience of secular liberalism, in the 1800s and 18 teens, and it didn't work out very well. Large numbers of Italian uh, men had been, uh, you know, forced into military service in Napoleon's armies in places like uh, Germany and Russia, and it hadn't worked out well for them. Um, 
So I think it's fair to say that you have the tension, which we were early talking about, uh, talking about, but which of course plays through in different cases, different scenarios, the tension between following what you might call in inverted commas a national solution, whatever that means, and the tension about what you might call following an international solution. Now the Habsburgs you can see as an international solution, you can see that what used to be considered progress as an adjunct of the Napoleonic system uh, was an aspect of an internationalism that was very harmful for the average Italian, whatever that means. And you could go on to argue the same was to be the case with the world wars for Italy. Um, very differently, of course, going into war in 1915 and going into war in 1940, uh, which your listeners should be aware of the years in which Italy begins those world wars, meant, you know, were very different world wars and they were different alliances. But in each case, you could argue that entry into those wars, whilst they might have served the domestic purposes and narratives proved astonishingly costly for the average Italian. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, staying, with, staying in the 19th century for a moment, uh, how do you evaluate as a statesman uh, Count Cavour, and do you think that if he had not died prematurely in 1860, that uh, it, the United Italy would have um, evolved differently? Well, I think he was certainly an astute figure, um, and he certainly knew how to play Napoleon III. So, you know, tick, tick. Um, I think it's very difficult. Most careers end in failure, Enoch Powell's, most political careers, observation about that. And look at that great astute figure, um, Count Metternich, and he, his career didn't exactly end in success. So if Cavour had lived for longer, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I think if Cavour had lived for longer in international terms, Italy would still have achieved what it did achieve, which is in 1866, gaining the Veneto, and in 1870, gaining Rome. And I think that would have happened whoever was running it because of the way in which Austria was under uh, greater pressure internationally from Prussia in 1866 and France from Prussia in 1870. So those are adjuncts, if you like, of Italy's ability to swing its alliance system. Uh, and I think, you know, Cavour would have probably done the same. As far as Italian domestic politics are concerned, um, I think you know, you can again play through different ways. I mean, what are we looking at in terms of failure in the late 19th century? It's generally agreed that Southern Italy was a unhappy um, companion <laughs> to the North, if you like, uh, to what was seen in the South by many as uh, Piedmontese uh, conquest. I'm not sure that would have changed whoever was running uh, the United Italy. Um, it's generally agreed that in the very long term, Italian, uh, uh, you know, external imperialism, um, you know, the Italian, so the African adventures uh, don't work out. Well, yes, that's true. But I don't I think that would have happened again, whoever was running the system. So I think Italy had 
practical problems, some of them looping right back to where we were at the beginning, are related to aspects of geography. It does not have the large uh, coal and iron-based industry that you're to see in Germany or Britain or the United States or Russia, for that matter. Um, and it has problems through being geographically fragmented. Uh, but, you know, obviously it would be wrong to argue that more political skill at individual moments might might have made an impact. And uh, But, you know, Cavour wouldn't have lasted forever. And I suspect most politicians would have been would have been tempted to follow the same sort of problems. And if you look at um, and if you look at the other state uh, that emerges very clearly through unification in the mid 19th century, which is Germany, uh, I mean, you've got business. Mark being extremely talented, uh, but, you know, wind the clock forward and look what happens in 1914 and 1918. However talented your governing class uh, in the 1860s or 70s, it doesn't mean you're not going to be run by absolute nincompoops in, by 1914. Do you agree with uh, Dennis Max Smith's argument that the events of May 1915 in the manner in which Italy was forced against both popular and parliamentary opposition into the Great War was in uh, essence a precursor of um, the um, November 1922 uh, fascist takeover? No, I think that would be wrong and a glib approach. And I think, you know, like a lot of people, he he would not have probably argued that in if you'd got him into a corner and asked him politely about it. Um, no, I think that um, 1922 is not inevitable. I mean, if you look at the um, immediate situation at the end of the war, what you are going to see as fascism uh, was not as was not particularly uh, politically popular. And in 1922 itself, I think the monarchy bottled it. Um, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, had the king told the army to stop Mussolini, then the army would have done so. And, uh, you know, it had its troops able to do that. So I don't think there's inev any inevitability about it. I think that Italy was um, under enormous economic and political strain as a result of the war. And I think liberalism... Um, you know, uh, liberalism was weaker. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I don't think it means that either Mussolini's rise to power or indeed the form in which it uh, uh, rose to power was, was, was clear cut. I mean, if you take the elections in November um, 1919, uh, the fascists do extremely badly. Um, and the party that uh, you know is doing well are the socialists, um, and so I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would agree with that argument. Now you could take that a stage further and loop it if you wanted to do so in a much more interesting fashion, and say, is Mussolini, who of course had been a socialist, is Mussolini's rise to power that of a form of socialism? Now that would be much more interesting, and you could then make the same question about uh, Adolf Hitler in, 19, in a very different context in 1933 in Germany. In other words, saying, 
is it the case maybe that um, aggressive nationalist socialists are successful in the aftermath of wars which are extraordinarily disruptive and difficult? And that might be an argument you could make, but it certainly doesn't make their course inevitable, just as it's not in any way inevitable that Adolf Hitler would have risen to power in Germany uh, in 1933. But in essence, you don't really agree with the argument uh, that the entry of Italy into the Great War in May 1915 was something which, in retrospect, was a mistake because of the lack of popular support, at least in terms of uh, parliament and as well as in the country as a whole. No, I wouldn't agree with that. And I, I, I think that the... To a degree that people possibly today, I mean, here we are, look what's going on in Britain at the moment, to, to a degree that people possibly today don't understand, foreign policy, was, which included classically the declaration of war, was regarded as a matter of the royal prerogative. Um, and I think that, you know, one's got to be careful here. Most of the, of the political world wanted to see Italy become a great power. Uh, the prime minister in 16, Antonio Salandra uh, presented Italy's policy as sacred selfishness. The king, Victor Emmanuel III, was an Anglophile. So I think one has to be very, very careful here. Um, only the Socialist Party formally opposed the war. Uh, and of course, I think what one's got to, you know, you know, the, you know pacifist views, vo views were voiced, but just as they were in France. Um, and there were hostile large-scale demonstrations against the move to war, especially in the major industrial city of Turin. But you know, you've got to be clear about this. In 1916, 1917, subsequently, you know, most Italians did not respond in that way. There wasn't the same degree of crisis that you're to see um, in Russia in 1917 uh, or indeed in um, in Germany. And it's really the military failure in the Caporetto Offensive of October 1917 that produces a, a crisis. I mean, you know, there'd already been demonstrations uh, slightly earlier in 1917 in Turin with crowds calling for bread peace and bread, but it's Caporetto that focuses a fear that the system is going to uh, to collapse. And, you know, you, again, I'll go back to the point I made earlier. People are unwilling to accept the extent to which war is an independent factor. In other words, military events, failure or success can play an enormous role impacting in the political system. Now, most historians don't like to do that, argue that, because they, of course, want to believe that military history is only done by people that bayonet babies at dawn, and that you don't need to look in those kind of interpretations. But what I would argue is that... Um, it's the crisis of October 1917, uh, which causes a lot of uh, problems. But ironically, what it does is the uh, prime minister, the uh, you know, new government uh, under Vittorio Orlando, 
uh, and you know they actually manage with their sort of version of David Lloyd George back to, uh, sorry General Haig's back to the wall um, you know propaganda they managed to rally the country and you know what you've got at the at the very end of 1917 the beginning of 1918 you've got a toughening of price controls you've got rationing of bread you've got not the collapse of civil society in that context but actually a tremendous effort that is mounted in 1918 to rally and of course that ends up with the Italians launching their offensive at Vittorio Veneto and defeating the Austrians. And, you know, the war ends with Austria, with Austria being defeated by Italy. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Austrian prisoners, the Italians planning an offensive into Bavaria through the Brainer, the Brainer Pass. Now, at that point, um, it's easy to understand why the government feels that it deserves a better peace settlement than it is going to get. And if you want to look at sort of political anger, um, you know, at the background to Mussolini, I suppose in part it's going to be the we was cheated argument of the peace terms. And in particular, the villain there is Woodrow Wilson and um, the, um, you know, national self-determination and the rather curious job they make of Yugoslavia, which thwarts uh, Italian ambitions. Um, and you could say that the other problem is that the 1919 general election, in which the fascists do, as I repeat, very badly, is not followed by particularly competent political leadership. But I would be very wary indeed of arguing, however attractive it is, I'd be very wary of arguing for some inevitability linking 1915 and um, 1922. In terms of the rise of fascism, you state in the book that, quote, on one level, unquote, it was, quote, the armed reaction of a part of a part of the middle class to socialism, unquote. Could you expand on that? Yes, I mean, fascism drew on a wide range of factors. One of the skillful aspects of Mussolini, who was in some respects a very facile individual, is that he's able to appeal to very different tendencies. So on the one hand, um, Mussolini both has elements of socialist rhetoric and argument, which is quite attractive to the non-communist working class, but he also is able to present himself as a bullock against socialism and communism uh, to, to the middle class. And, I mean, th these different tendencies of fascism are to help to make it contradictory once it's in power under Mussolini, but at the same time, they mean that aspects of the fascist state can reach out to different parts of the of society. So... The middle class can see themselves as protected against socialism and communism. And remember, that's an enormous fear. I mean, you know, you've seen not only communism in the Soviet Union, you've seen the Belakun revolution in uh, Hungary in 1919, a short-lived communist revolution there. You've seen communist attempts in Germany. You can understand 
Italian bourgeoisie being worried, uh, particularly those of them who are Catholic, which is the vast and overwhelming majority of them, uh, because, you know, the, the ultimate Cold War that breaks out is the Cold War between Catholicism and communism, and it's not a particularly Cold War. Um, so the middle class is attracted to that, but the working class elements are attracted to the sort of social corporatism that's seen in aspects of fascist policy, its attempt to produce full employment, its nativist poli- its policies of trying to build up the birth rate and provide sort of a degree of cradle to grave uh, policy. The elite see themselves as being able to get more jobs through, um, you know, through um, through the state. Um, Catholics are to be pr- pleased by the way in which Mussolini, uh, in the end, signs the Lateran treaties with the Pope, so that this sort of, you know, this internal, this this very bad relationship between liberalism and the papacy, which had begun in 1870, uh, is brought to an end in 1929. So a lot of elements look to Mussolini. Nationalists like the idea that he beats up on the Greeks very soon after coming in and starts sort of digging Italy up. And, um, and so there are a lot of elements that like and find Mussolini attractive. And it reflects the fact that he, it means different things to different audiences. Do you agree with the argument of uh, Rienzo di Felice that in the years from approximately 1929 to 1936 that uh, Mussolini's regime enjoyed widespread legitimacy? I think he uses the expression, these were the years of consensus. Uh, Yes, that's not quite the same thing. I mean, consensus is not quite the same thing as legitimacy. I mean, obviously, it it was the king's government. uh, You know, I think that's point to first of all bring out. Uh, Mussolini's position is always a bit odd as a dictator in a monarchy when he is the monarch. Um, I think in the early 30s, a lot of Italians continued the practice that had characterized Italian history and that still characterizes it, which is quite frankly, you know, the state is a protection cost we pay. Most people's politics and loyalty is to their local community and often an extended kinship group. But if you mean by the question, I mean, De Felici, of course, is, um, shall we say, more sympathetic to Mussolini uh, than, than some people are happy with. If you mean, was there widespread opposition to Mussolini uh, in terms of the, um, shall we say, the degree of uh, social and political disorder that you are to, that you might have seen in Spain prior to the Civil War? The answer is no. Uh, if you mean, is Italy more uh, domestically peaceful than at the times of often quite large-scale violence, civil violence, so at social level in, shall we say, 1920-21? The answer is yes, it is more peaceful. If you mean, are Italians all happy with the government? No. But if you mean, do they generally manage to accommodate themselves to the government? The answer is yes. And on top of that, and here we're in dangerous grounds, because I certainly wouldn't have liked living in, uh, in Mussolini's Italy, but, uh, but if you want to make comparisons, obviously Italy is far less, it's not a vicious state like Nazi Germany, and it's not a vicious state like Stalin's Soviet Union. 
if you're looking for a comparator regime, most I would look at the Pilsenski-run uh, Poland and, uh, or, or horses Hungary. And I would say those are interestingly parallel to uh, Mussolini, as indeed is the uh, Nuovo Stado in both um, Salazar's Portugal and Vargas's Brazil. Uh, these are Catholic states with uh, essentially authoritarian rule um, run by um, sort of figures who are bitterly anti-communist but in no way are sim similar to the totalitarian brutality that we associate with communism nor are they associated in any way comparable to the vicious uh, genocidal violence that we are to associate with uh, with Hitler. And I think that's quite important. I mean, people often run together the Axis powers. And of course, Mussolini liked to see himself as the senior dictator. And he got a bit uppity that, that uh, you know, that uh, Hitler upstaged him. But the fact of the matter is there was an enormous contrast between the two. Having said that, I would not like to have lived in Mussolini's Italy. And I find I've read Felice's uh, work, uh, you know, very large and long work. And um, I think he's a bit more, well, considerably more sympathetic to, uh, to Mussolini than I would be. Putting your military historian's hat on for a second, uh, how do you explain uh, the subpar performance of the Italian military in the Second World War? And uh, how do, and I suppose sub, when, I, when I use the expression of the word subpar, it would appear, in fact, that uh, the military performance as such not only was subpar per se, but also reflected a decline from the performance in the Great War. Well, again, Charles, that's very interesting as questions. I mean, of course, they are fighting in more adverse circumstances. Um, I think fighting, for example, in East Africa against the Brits or in the Soviet Union, uh, 90, uh, you know, against the Soviets, that is, those are very tough tasks. And also, of course, they're having to deploy a navy against the world's leading navy, the Brits, in the Mediterranean. And that's not easy. But the, the question, I think, is a reasonable one. I mean, for example, the Italians do very badly against the Greeks um, in late 1940, early 41. They do badly against the French in June 1940, and obviously they do very badly against um, the British in North Africa and East Africa. So I think what one's looking at is a number of factors here. I think morale is not terribly high. I think that's very important. Secondly, once they fail, failure becomes, as is so often the case with militaries, it, as it were, becomes integral. In other words, it becomes very difficult to shift that. I mean, I, you and I have both read Jonathan Fennell's book about the problems that affected the British Eighth Army once it had been beaten by the Africa Corps and how difficult it is to regain its morale. And I think you've got the same sort of issue with the Italians. Um, there are, there are obvious problems with their military industrial system. The Gregor Knox brings that out in his book. Um, you know, things like very poor uh, aero engines affecting their air force, etc., etc. Uh, I think the command structure is poor. One of the great problems with authoritarian systems is you tend to get promotion of people that the person at the top is happy with. Um, and I think that's a root problem with the Italian regime. And also, they've got the classic problem that they've put an enormous emphasis on mass uh, numbers 
and that you know might have been very useful when they were fighting the Ethiopians, but it proves to be inappropriate, uh, in, and it leads them to become more sclerotic in their manoeuvres against both the Greeks and the Brits. So I would argue it's it's a combination of all of those. But I would point out, I mean, I think the phrase subpar is a good one. I think it's a very good one, but I would point out that, you know, you and I have discussed this in my own work on World War II. I have tried to show and other scholars have tried to show that the kind of sort of worship which you get out there of the supposed competence of the Wehrmacht is complete rubbish. You know, the, a lot of Wehrmacht units are, if you wish to use that term, subpar. Um, so I think one's got to be very, very careful here. I mean, Italy goes down to defeat and failure. So, so during the course of the war, do a hell of a lot of other people. Um, so and I, I think that point is, is worth bringing out. Overall, what is your assessment of what could be labeled the First Republic, the Italian Republic from um, 1946 to 1992? Uh, not particularly good. And I think the fact that that republic ends with a, um, with a uh, you know, the collapse of the political system in the 1990s is important. No, I would say very poor. I think that um, Italy benefits from, as does you know, the rest of Western Europe from the, so and in fact, most of the world's economy from the so-called long boom. Um, I think it benefits from being bolstered by the United States economically, financially, and and in other respects. But I think one's got enormous problems there, enormous problems there, and I think it leads to political crisis in the end. Uh do you, uh, in terms of contemporary Italia, do you see more signs of continuity or discontinuity? In what? In contemporary Italy? I think modern Italy, well, again, one's got to be very careful as a Brit saying this. It's not exactly that British politics are a bundle of laughs at the moment or of great success, but I think Italian politics has enormous problems. There are big structural problems. Incidentally, what's hilarious is a lot of the things that people in Britain see as, as each were you know, the things to get them out of problems. Like some people believe, you know, proportional representation would be a good thing. Some people believe staying in the European Union would be a good thing. I mean, what one sees with Italy is, you know, you know, you can vary the, the, um, your supposed remedy, but problems arise. And um, could you be more specific when you make reference in the book to quote the Italian dilemma, unquote? Um, well, I think there are lots of Italian dilemmas um, my view is that the Italian dilemmas are multiple. In other words, you've, got, you've created a state which doesn't enjoy the inherent loyalty of much of its population. Much of the population is more loyal to its locality than they are to the state. That's point one. Point two, um, linked to that, Northern Italy and Southern Italy are on very different trajectories. And if you go to Southern Italy, you will notice that absolutely. If you go, for example, to a city like Verona in Northern Italy, you could just as well be in Southern Germany. There's prosperity. There's a kind of urban civic, an urban civic culture. It's completely different if you were to go to, say, I don't know, a place like Eritrea in, in Sicily, so where you feel that you're happily back 100 years and things are very, very different to the situation that one's in at the present day. So I think one has to look 
very, very carefully at the idea. You and I talk about Italy. There is in practice, as there are for all sorts of countries, Italy's same thing in the United States, and Maine is scarcely Alabama. Um, but the, the tension in Italy is that people are finding it harder and harder to get the compromises to work. You know, when you've got a very diverse society, you need to work on success in producing compromise. This pattern seems to be breaking down. And I think that is a real problem. And, you know, I wish the Italians well. I like going to Italy. I find that it's absolutely fine when you sort of superficially wander around. But, you know, you talk to them. You, I've given lectures at several Italian universities. You read the newspapers. You watch the television. And, you know, you can see there, are, there is a lot of tension there. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, well, the element we've not talked about. I've tried repeatedly in the book to indicate the fascination of visiting the country. And in terms of the density of things to see, it is remarkable. If you are to go to any, you know, let's say 100 square mile area or 1,000 square mile area of Italy, there is far more to see than you would find in most countries in the world. You will not find, for example, an experience of driving hour after hour and finding relatively worthy people in the United States, but very relatively little to see in terms of, you you know, in terms of churches or townscapes of interest, you'd find it completely different in Italy. And this book is partly an introduction for people who, as it were, stay at home, but it's partly an, an introduction for travellers. It both tells you about the cities they will know about, Venice or Rome or Florence, but it will also tell you about places they don't know about. And that's very important. There are large parts of Italy that people don't visit enough. Um, the, the far northeast, for example, Trieste, Udino, Trevisio, um, you know, there are lots of areas that are worth seeing there that are interesting and that I'm trying to communicate that interest at the same time as one as one reads about its history. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black, very much.